This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. The Protestant Reformation was a recovery of the biblical doctrine of salvation by God's favor alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and the Christian life governed by Scripture alone as the final authority for the Christian faith and the Christian life. The Protestant Reformation was a gospel reformation, and that's a cause worth carrying on. What are the organizations helping to do that, especially in the context of the Presbyterian Church in America, is the Gospel Reformation Network. Their purpose is to cultivate healthy Reformed churches in the PCA. They have seven parts to their statement of purpose, and the Reverend Dr. John Payne is on campus this week to talk with our faculty and our students about the work of the GRN. John is senior pastor of Christ Church Presbyterian PCA in Charleston, South Carolina. Before that, he was a PCA pastor in Atlanta. He's a trustee of the Banner of Truth Trust. He's studied at New College Edinburgh, and he's executive coordinator of the Gospel Reformation Network. He's an editor of a series of commentaries on the scriptures, and uh, he and his wife, Marla, live in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, and they have two children. You are a busy man, and your life is changing all the time, John. Welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks so much, Scott. Good to be here with you again. It uh, has only been a year since you were here. I had to change your whole bio. (laughs) Okay, behind the scenes, listener, I pulled up the bio that I wrote for John last year, and a bunch of it wasn't right, so I had to fix it all. Anyway, we're glad you're with us again, so it's good to have you on campus. So what in the world is going on? Why are you here? What is the Gospel Reformation Network? Yeah, the Gospel Reformation Network is really an informal uh, network that's more organized now, but really an informal network of ministers that are concerned about some of the trajectories going on in the PCA. It began back in the winter of 2012, as there were lots of ministers and members of PCA churches concerned about the way the doctrine of sanctification was being taught or not being taught in our churches. And so, Several of us decided that we would bring together some resources and encouragement to the denomination on the doctrine of sanctification. And so we started a website and we had an annual luncheon at the General Assembly of the PCA. What is that website? Uh, Gospelreformation.net. All right, one more time gospelreformation.net. And that's one word. Yes. And it's full of wonderful resources and articles and uh, information about the GRN. And so for years, we've really focused on sanctification. And then a couple of years ago, we realized that there were a lot more things happening in the PCA that were worthy of a conversation about in, in regards to staying faithful to our Reformed confession in the life of the PCA and being faithful to the Scriptures. In fact, our motto is faithful to the Scriptures, true to the Reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission. And so we wanted to help the denomination to think about some things that were going on in light of that. Who are some of the other folks who are involved in the GRN? Yes. So the council of the Gospel Reformation Network is made up of eight men, Reverend Dr. Ligon Duncan, Reverend Jason Halopoulos, who is serving up in East Lansing, Michigan. He took Kevin DeYoung's place up there. And Reverend Richard Phillips, who is at Second Pres in Greenville, Reverend Dr. Harry Reeder at Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Reverend Dr. David Strain, who serves at First Pres Jackson, and then uh, Mr. Mel Duncan, who's a ruling elder at Second Pres, and then Reverend Dr. 
Dr. Uh, Dave Garner, who is serving at Westminster Philadelphia. And so we basically oversee this network. And also there are a couple of staff people that help to do some editing and coordinating for us. So you've sketched for us a little bit about how it came to be and how your work is evolving. Why is it so important that there be such an organization in the PCA, like the GRN? And why is it important for you to be out here on campus talking to us and to the students? Yeah, so in a perfect world, there would be no reason for ministers within a large, sprawling denomination to ever have to talk about these things and to have these concerns. But the history of the church would teach us that in a large and aging denomination, there are going to be those who seek to push the, the limits and cross lines of our confessional integrity and aren't holding fast to the things that traditionally and historically we've held fast to. And so with this doctrine of sanctification, we were seeing that, you know, people weren't stressing the fact that we're not only saved from something, but to something, not only from the depths of hell, but to a life of godliness. And so that uh, in the mix of several other things that were being taught about sanctification that were concerning to us we began teaching on this. And then, you know, of course, now we are teaching on several aspects, as we were talking about before the show, Scott, uh, with the Revoice Conference emerging last year, being hosted in a PCA church. What was that? Just quickly, in case the listener's not aware. Revoice was a conference, again, held in a PCA church in the Missouri Presbytery that was seeking to affirm those who are struggling with same-sex attraction or possess same-sex attraction. What was so concerning about it were a lot of the teachers that they brought in. They had, a, for instance, a lesbian Catholic woman who taught at this. Uh, there were uh, lots of very erroneous things that were said about human sexuality within that conference. And so, of course, it wasn't just members of the PCA that were concerned. The whole wider church is concerned about the PCA for good reason because of this. We have overtures coming to the General Assembly this year supporting the Nashville Statement on Sexuality as well as some other overtures that are coming that concern some of us. Uh, the New York Presbytery, of course, bringing forth this overture on uh, female deacons, ordaining female deacons. So really, we exist to, as you said at the outset, cultivate healthy reformed churches in the PCA to warmly and we hope winsomely to engage with our brothers in Christ about things that we may at the end of the day disagree with. But what does our confession say? What does the Bible say? And how are we established back in 1973? Yeah, that's one of the things I wanted to get to. I'm sure. glad, you, I'm glad you, you mentioned that. You talked in passing about the history of the PCA, but it might help the listener to know a little bit about the background of the PCA. You are a relative Relatively, you said aging denomination, but really you're a very young denomination by most standards. And you were formed in 1973 officially out of where? Yes, we came out of the mainline denomination of the Presbyterian Church. So uh, the old Southern the, Presbyterian the old, Church. The old Southern Presbyterian Church, right. And of course, at the time, there were wild things happening in presbyteries. Such as? Such as people denying the bodily resurrection of Christ and still being ordained. Okay, and... so these were not small things. So it's, <laughs> it's important for the listener to know that, uh, you know, these were not sort of idiosyncratic, unimportant, inconsequential things. And a bunch of uh, angry Presbyterians, uh, you know, got mad because they didn't get their way and they walked away and they formed a no. new denomination. These were big issues. 
Right. Issues regarding women's roles within the church. And so we see the seeds of these things in the life of our denomination, not necessarily anyone denying the bodily resurrection of Christ, but the biblical hermeneutic that people are coming with now are... That's the way of interpreting Scripture. Right. Uh, It raises concerns. If somebody says, well, the Apostle Paul was culturally conditioned when he speaks about this issue, and, and my own ecclesiastical affiliation is in the United Reformed churches, and we came out of a group where this argument was being made, that Paul was, as one person said, hopelessly patriarchal. And so what he said about men and women, and particularly men and women in the church, is conditioned by his first century, sort of backwards by implication, patriarchalist view of men and women. And we're more enlightened than that now. We know better now. And so, you know, we appreciate Paul, and and, uh, when he gets the gospel right, we're excited about that. But this other stuff, not so much. We're going to kind of put that to the side. So if that becomes the way that people handle Scripture, where does that lead, John? Well, it leads to cultural accommodation on every level. And this is what we have seen. Such as? Such as the ordination of women to all offices, such as the receiving of those living in a homosexual lifestyle into church membership and inviting them to the Lord's table. Without saying to them, listen, we love you. We want you to be here. We want you to hear the law and the gospel, but we want you as part of your profession of faith or as a consequence of your profession of faith to repent of gross sins, right? And so living in a homosexual relationship is, as we understand Scripture, a gross sin. It's a contradiction of, as the Apostle Paul says, the laws of nature in Romans 1, 26 and 27. And it's a violation of the moral law of God. Just as if a man or a woman would come and say, we're living yeah. together, we'd like to join the church. And you'd say, well, we're glad you're here. Yes. And we love you, but we can't affirm your sins. Yes. We love you, but we can't affirm your sins. Yes. Yes. So you're not a bigot. You're trying to be faithful to Scripture. And when you say women being ordained to office, you're not – and again, the listener needs to understand that there is pretty clear instruction in, for example, 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, that limit which sexes can serve in special office. In in the PCA, that would be deacons, and then you have ruling elders and teaching elders. And as you have understood the Scriptures heretofore, those offices are open to members of the male sex. Yes, and we see this dynamic in marriage as well. And what's interesting to me is you don't have as many folks challenging the idea that a man is to be head of his wife, yeah. right? And and yet the challenge is coming within the life of the church that the woman ought to be head of the man in terms of office. But I don't hear the same argument necessarily being made from Ephesians chapter 5, sort of neglecting that teaching, which says a man shall be head of his wife. Are we going to jettison that as well? And that's why I'm talking about the biblical hermeneutic that's used in one place will be used in another in order to deconstruct the whole Christian faith to be more culturally accommodating. Than and it's not just biblical. a it's not just a slippery slope, is it? I mean, it's not as if you're sort of looking down the corridors of time and predicting where things are going. Right? These things are happening right in front of us. Yes, and have happened. Yeah, uh, throughout the centuries, they've already happened. We've already seen it. We don't have to guess. You can look at the mainline Presbyterian Church. So part of what happened around 1973 was that the old Southern Presbyterian Church, which had split from the North around the Civil War, reunited with the Northern Presbyterian Church and formed what is today TPC USA, the Presbyterian Church Mm -hmm. USA. And if you want to know what happened, you can look at the Presbyterian Church USA. They've lost 70,000 members a year for decades 
right? And they used to be 2.4 million people, and they finally updated their membership statistics recently, and um, they're one point something now. And um, it's difficult, if not impossible, for a minister who openly believes the Westminster standards to be uh, ordained Mm -hmm. to ministry. It's possible to deny the cardinal doctrines of the faith and be ordained to ministry in the PCUSA. Not to say there aren't faithful believers and faithful ministers still in the PCUSA, but these approaches to Scripture have consequences. Mm. And so that you and I both heard stories that when a minister is perhaps a faithful minister has done pulpit supply, filled the pulpit and done an old-fashioned, you know, reformed sermon, older saints will walk up and say, you know, that was so refreshing. We haven't heard that kind of preaching in decades. Yes. Right? I've heard that story many times. And yes. I'm sure you have yes, as well. Yes, absolutely. And, and you don't want that to happen to the PCA. No, we love the PCA. And uh, what we have seen as well is that those who are wanting to go into a more progressive direction, if I can use that word, they've left the PCA and they've joined the EPC. Which is the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Or they've joined the ECO. Evangelical Covenant Order. Right, which are the churches that came out of the PCUSA that didn't want to go where they were going, but wanted their own version of what they wanted to do. These are places where you can have females ordained to... The office of elder, for example, or or continue practicing Pentecostal gifts. Right. Yes. So our desire, again, is to cultivate healthy reformed churches in the PCA and to give resources and to provide encouragement for uh, churches to stand firm in our reformed confession. If churches or teaching elders are not happy within the borders of our denomination, as it were, and they feel restricted, then really they should understand that their vows call them to move on, not to try to change the denomination from within, but to move to another field of ministry. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. You're not saying that nobody can ever challenge the standards or call the church to reformation, but you're talking about a fundamental fidelity to basic core convictions held by the PCA. Yes, absolutely. So you had mentioned our seven couplets, uh, our distinctives, and um, These are uh, really core to who we are as an organization and what we want to encourage. The first one is biblical fidelity and confessional integrity. You use the word couplet. What does that mean? That's an interesting word. Yeah, so these two ideas really go hand in hand. So you're not putting the Westminster Standards on top of the Scriptures? Nope, nope, nope. They are certainly subordinate to the Word of God, but they are a natural consequence of biblical Christianity. You have to believe something about the Bible. And so we have our confessions. It's basic to who we are as a denomination and our Christian witness. And so we've seen a lot of people very much disregard the confession, not only in their teaching and in their preaching, but also at the assembly level using cultural arguments rather than biblical ones and confessional ones in, in okay, that context. Okay, th- that's important. You're not saying that nobody can come to the PCA and say, listen, I think the Westminster Standards are wrong here, and I think we need to rethink this according to Scripture. You would support the right of someone to come with that kind of an argument. Absolutely. And you would want to engage that argument and consider whether it's true. What you're worried about, if I'm hearing you correctly, is that there are people just practically ignoring the confession and not going through the courts of the church 
to address their concerns. Or even within the courts of the church, standing up and okay. giving an argument from experience cultural or, ex- or experience, yeah, rather than or feelings. Using, or feelings. That's a big one. Yeah. Rather than from the scriptures or from confession. And so we want to see in worship and in preaching an unyielding commitment to the inspiration, inerrancy, authority, sufficiency, and efficacy for scripture, for faith and practice, and also a resolute, positive adherence to the Westminster standards, not just sort of not the head to them and putting them on the shelf, but that they're actually very much a part of the ministry in the church. So that, for instance, in our young congregation, where most of the people are not from a reform background, prior to us having to stop our adult Sunday school classes a couple of months ago because of issues with the school we're meeting in, I was teaching straight through the Westminster Larger Catechism. Wonderful treasure trove of doctrine to communicate to our people. They loved it. Most of them had never been in the Larger Catechism before, and it was written for the discipleship of congregations, right? And then then, of course, I spend time with the little ones before evening worship, teaching them the shorter catechism, and we walk through that together. So that's a way where we are not just giving a nod to the confessional standards, but actually using them in the life of the church, because we believe this is the system of doctrine that most accurately expresses biblical Christianity. The second one says gospel-driven and Christ-exalting ministry. So you're not meanie pants bad guys with a baseball (laughs) bat, right, running around smacking people with whom you disagree. You're really seeking to call people to preach Christ and to exalt Christ in their ministry. Yes. Uh, the Apostle Paul, and at the end of Colossians, gives a bit of an autobiographical word, and he, speaking on behalf of the Apostle, says, Him we proclaim. It is Christ and Him crucified. First Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, it's Christ and the gospel that must be central in all of our preaching, in all of our teaching, in our liturgy. In fact, I would argue that a faithful reform liturgy better preaches the gospel throughout from call to worship to benediction than any of the newer contemporary expressions of worship. And so we are fundamentally gospel-centered in the preaching. We come to the Lord's table weekly and in our teaching, our Bible studies, we want that to be central. And yet it's always with the aim of exalting Christ in the hearts and minds and affections of God's people. Sometimes I think that focusing on gospel this, gospel that can be divorced from a real growing in holiness as we are keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus and we're truly walking with him and abiding in him. So it's not just gospel this, gospel that, let's live how we want. It's let's preach the gospel and then keep our eyes on the loveliness of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's a part of our piety. So that's how those two things would go together. And that's part of biblical fidelity, right? I mean, if you're talking about being faithful to the confession, faithful to the scriptures, and you're not preaching Christ, then you're not really being faithful to the word of God, and you're not really being faithful to the confession. So this is not a sort of a legal movement seeking to put people back under the law in order to get them to be good and so forth. Not that you don't want them to be sanctified. Obviously, that was the animating goal from the beginning of the GRN was that that justification leads to progressive sanctification, and people had forgotten that. Yes, the confession on the law says that the law does not contradict the gospel. It sweetly complies with it when understood properly as the fruit of true and saving faith and not the root of it. And the Shorter Catechism says that sanctification is the work of God's grace. So this is not a legal thing. Your number three says that you're devoted to earnest prayer and expository preaching. Yeah, so as we state on our website, we resolve to practice fervent prayer in the closet and from the pulpit. 
the church has always struggled to pray. Individual Christians have always struggled to pray. We need to admit that. But what is sorely lacking is the model of pastoral prayer in the pulpit. And we want to really encourage that as an important aspect of pastoral ministry. And if we're not praying in our churches from the pulpit, if they're just little quick prayers while the instruments are being put down or or picked up, (laughs) uh, that's not going to bode well for the church. You know, I'll often hear from new families that you'll hear a sigh from one of the kids because my pastoral prayer is lasting seven (laughs) or eight minutes. And One thing I've taught over the years is that the reason why not just kids sigh, but even adults, and while they'll make comments after the service, wow, that was a long prayer, that was like a sermon, is because they themselves are not praying at home. And so it's a situation where people are, because they are not praying themselves, they're not used to people praying for more than a minute anywhere else. And so we need to recover prayer. Acts 6, we see the commitment of the apostles to prayer and to the word and not to get distracted from that. We as an organization believe ministers have gotten distracted from commitment to prayer. And then of course, expository preaching that we would preach the gospel from the whole counsel of God, verse by verse, in a way that clearly communicates that we believe the Bible is the authoritative, efficacious word of God. So you're thinking about seminary, but you're asking yourself, where will I live in Escondido? Westminster Seminary, California has good news. We've completed Westminster Village, a beautiful new place for you to live on campus. Open now, Westminster Village features eight residential buildings, 64 apartments, including one, two, and three bedroom units, and a commons where seminary families can fellowship together. Here's Joel Kim, president of Westminster Seminary, California, on the benefits of Westminster Village. Escondido is a beautiful place in which to live, but students wonder if they can actually afford it. Our goal is to benefit the students by providing a beautiful but affordable place to live on campus. In addition, we believe that learning happens not only in the classroom, but also by living together in community. Just as lifelong learning begins in the classroom, so lifelong relationships will begin in our new residential village. For more information, call toll-free 888-480-8474. That's 888-480-8474. Or visit us online at wscal.edu. That's wscal.edu. And ask us about our new residential village. wscal.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Number four, intentional evangelism and personal discipleship. Mm. Yeah, so we've seen that a lot of evangelism is really pre-evangelism or what I've called pre-pre-evangelism and you're not actually confronting people with the gospel, the law and the gospel. And we want to encourage that. We believe that there needs to be a recovery of bold evangelism in the life of the church where we're actually sharing the truth about sin and about hell and heaven and law and gospel and that we're not forever doing pre-evangelism and friendship evangelism where we're never actually getting around to the fact that we're sharing the good news. Yeah. And then personal discipleship, it leads to personal discipleship, that we're actually seeking to encourage faith maturing discipleship, that the goal, again, back to the end of Colossians chapter one, of proclaiming Christ is making mature disciples in the life of the church. We don't want to leave people in a place of immaturity in the life of the church. And I think that sometimes we get so concerned about being accessible to the lost that we forget to take people 
to the depths of the scriptures and the gospel so that they'll grow and become mature in their faith. There is a lot of talk in the church growth literature, at least there was once upon a time, about front doors and side doors and back doors. And one does see this phenomenon of uh, you know the church being accessible to the public, which is great, and people coming in of all kinds, and that is an answer to prayer, but then people sort of leaking out the side, and they sort of pass through the church, and they're never really engaged personally, and they just sort of wander away. And so you're saying, listen, we need to be engaged with people on an individual level, and not just filling pews, but leading them to a greater piety and godliness and commitment to Christ. Amen. But that doesn't seem very radical to me. It seems like sort of basic Christianity. It is, and we do believe that all of these points are really basic Christianity. Number five, godly leadership and Presbyterian polity. So here you've quit preaching and gone to meddling right here. <laughs> now we're getting pointed about how we think the church ought to be organized. I mentioned last year in the Dendalk lectures that I've had several friends and acquaintances fall into sin over the last few years. And the devil is hard at work to destroy ministers. So we encourage godly leadership, pastoral piety. And we actually, a couple of years ago, spent the whole year focusing on that very theme. And so, yeah, that's a big part of what we're trying to do is to encourage pastors to not forget that they are Christians first and then ministers, that they are sheep first and then shepherds, that they are members of the household first and then stewards of the household. And never to forget that, never to become professional in their approach to ministry or duplicitous in their life, that they're preaching from the pulpit that which they deeply feel and believe and are themselves experiencing in their own personal walk with the Lord. And then Presbyterian polity, that uh, we would understand that this is the polity that is clearly revealed in Scripture. We are Presbyterians, and so we should embrace and exercise this polity within the life of the church and not try to skirt it or to become something different. One big conversation going on right now is the way our agencies work. And there are overtures coming this year which challenge agencies doing some things that look more hierarchical rather than Presbyterian, and so we're hoping to interact with those ideas. I always tell my students that Episcopacy is natural. Most businesses, <laughs> right, and this is why I think yes. it's important to distinguish, and one of the many reasons why traditionally Reformed people have distinguished between nature and grace, because by nature, businesses tend to organize around Episcopal lines. Yes. I know that there are new businesses that are supposed to be non-Episcopal. I'll believe that when I see it. Typically, you have a CEO. Well, that's mm. your bishop. Mm. Right. And then you have vice presidents. Well, those are your archbishops. And then you have regional managers. Well, those are your bishops. Right. So that's just the natural organization. But grace institutes a messy, difficult, slow, awkward system of discipline, as we understand it. And when I say grace, I mean the word of God yes. revealed to us this system wherein we have you know, assemblies that are connected to each other. Our churches are connected to each other. We have regional assemblies. We have national assemblies. We have elders. We have pastors. We have deacons. In our tradition, we talk about those three offices. In your tradition, you tend to talk about two different kinds of elders and deacons, but it's a slow process, and to make changes is slow. In an episcopacy, a bishop can just issue a ruling 
ruling. And if it's a good ruling, I guess that's a good thing. But if it's a bad ruling, right, that might not be so helpful. Mm -hmm. And so it really does take an appreciation that all of this comes out of the Word of God and that God the Spirit has revealed it in the Scriptures and God has ordained it this way. So you've already mentioned overtures coming, and that's part of the process of following the Scriptures, following a process, and working through these things together as a group rather than turning to a single figure and saying, hey, sort this all out from the top down. And again, these couplets are being communicated in such a way as to say that they are related to each other. So godly leadership and Presbyterian polity, they go together because when men are walking with Christ with integrity and walking in godliness, then the way that they carry out their lives in the life of the wider church or the domination, as it were, is going to be done with character and with strong biblical ethics. Number six, reformed worship and vibrant community. Yes. Yeah, so within the PCA, it's not a secret that there's a wide divergence of approaches to worship. And you can walk into one PCA church one week and one another week, you would never think that they were in the same denomination. <laughs> Everything from Psalm 23 to uh, like a sloppy wet kiss yeah. <laughs> is what you're telling me. My students, I used to say, shine Jesus, shine. And the students said, Professor Clark, that's a classic hymn. Yeah. You need to say like a sloppy wet kiss. I said, what is that? And they laughed and they said, look it up on YouTube. And, uh, and they were kidding. No. no th this is a thing. I, I so, hadn't heard of that. Yeah. No, this is a thing. Uh, Thanks for ruining my day. So. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's office hours. Ruining your day since uh, 2009. So. So, so we believe that in a joyful commitment to and a humble confidence in the ordinary means of grace, that it's counterintuitive, it's countercultural, but that the Lord uses the word sacraments and prayer. So that's grace and not nature. It's grace yeah. to save and to sanctify his elect. We believe that reformed worship is making mature disciples. Reform worship is discipleship concentrated. And so vibrant communities attached to that, reform worship and vibrant community, what comes out of true gospel-centered, Christ-exalting worship? It's vibrant community. We've all seen it. And worship regulated by the Word of God, right? Yes. That's a key point in the Westminster Standards. Absolutely. Which is uh, maybe a point that gets lost sometimes, that uh, we may not all agree on what that entails, but that principle is pretty basic. And again, we don't want to, for our main focus to be being culturally accommodating with our worship, which I'm afraid is what we see a lot of in even our own denomination and around the wider church is the first question isn't what does the Bible say? It's what will people think yeah. or how can we get people in? And the Apostle Paul has an answer for that in 1 Corinthians 14. He says that when we're gathered before the face of the living God, our hope and prayer is that when the unbeliever walks into our service, that he will fall down on his face and glorify God. Yes, Right. Yes. Which is not typically the way that church growth guys talk about ministry or reaching the lost. Yes. Are we really confident in the Word of God for worship and ministry? Do we really believe that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ? Do we really believe it was the Word of God that raised the Valley of Dry Bones into a mighty army, which is a picture of God saving the church throughout the ages? Do we really believe in the efficiency and the efficacy of the Word of God as our confession clearly communicates? And that's a question every minister has to ask themselves and every church has to ask themselves because if the Word of God is not that which is determining the structure and content of your worship service, then it is going to be something else. What is informing 
your worship? That's a yeah. big question everybody needs Yeah, to your service is going to be regulated by something. Yes. Right? And the question is what? And if you're following the Westminster Standards, then it has to be the Word of God. That The standards are clear about that. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. The last point is important because you know, going through these points, I can imagine a listener saying, well, you know, you guys are all critical and negative and inward looking. But the last one says missional clarity and church multiplication. So this is supposed to have a consequence flowing out of the church into the world. Yes, absolutely. And to that point, if there are those who are listening who think that we're just sitting here with scowls on our faces and grouchy and only thinking that things are terrible. No, John's grouchy. I'm I'm never grouchy. Uh, I would just like to say that I serve one of the most evangelistic churches that I've ever been in. Members come up to me every single week, and I'm not exaggerating one bit here, and tell me about gospel conversations they're having with unsaved friends and family members. I personally, just in the past couple of weeks, have had wonderful gospel conversations with those who have never even set foot in the life of a church, uh, in a church at all. And so we are wanting to be evangelistic and we want to have clarity in that evangelistic endeavor because in our day, we're seeing a real focus on social justice and the transformation of culture rather than on getting back to one of the earlier points, bold, Christ-centered evangelism. Which isn't even entirely personal, right? This has corporate consequences. You're hoping to see churches planted and ministers standing yes. in the pulpit announcing the gospel and uh, people coming into the churches. Yes. Right? So it's not an either-or proposition for no. you. Is that, is that fair? No, it's not either-or. In fact, we just need to remember the Great Commission. The Great Commission, which our Lord gave to the church before he ascended to heaven, was to go into all the world and to make disciples. How are we supposed to do that? Well, he tells us, through the means of grace, through baptism, through the Lord's Supper, through the teaching of all that Christ commanded. And those aren't just the words in red, Scott. That's Genesis <laughs> to Revelation. It's the word yeah. of Christ. And in g- Yeah, in case the listener doesn't know what that means, there, uh, <laughs> there used to be Bibles, and maybe there still are, that were red letter, where they went through and they highlighted the words of Jesus in red. And so there's been a movement from time to time, red letter movements, where people said, well, I'm interested in what Jesus said, but I'm not so interested in everything else in the Bible which traditionally is associated with a variety of heretical movements because Scripture itself doesn't set the words of Jesus over against the rest of Scripture. It's all God's Word. I heard just recently from a professing believer, as I quoted Paul, they said, well, that's Paul and that's not Jesus. And that will be used oftentimes as well to defend, um, yeah, lots of heretical views. I wonder if people really know what Jesus actually said about marriage, for example, right? Jesus' instruction in Matthew 19 about marriage is as strict as anything that the Apostle Paul ever said. So when people say, well, I just want to follow the words of Jesus, well, okay, let's go and look and see what Jesus actually said uh, for the moment. Oh, oh. Well, not that Jesus. I, <laughs> oh, wait a minute now. You said you were interested in the words of Jesus, yes. but you don't like these words. A man and a woman shall join together. It was not so from the beginning, right? Uh, polygamy, that's not part of the natural creational pattern. The natural creational pattern is a man and a woman joining together. Yes. That's the teaching of this Jesus whom you say you follow. Yes. And I want to mention as well, Scott, that the Gospel Reformation Network has an approach to our ministry and encouraging our denomination that is seeking to be warm, winsome, encouraging. We want to establish relationships. We want to have conversations. And we, uh, and I could say I personally, have been 
criticized by what some would call the far right of the PCA for even having conversations with guys who would be on the more progressive side of things. And I would just like to say that as these are members in good standing in our denomination and fellow elders, they are my friends. They are those for whom Christ died. Uh, I love them. I have engaged in warm fellowship and conversation with them. We have disagreed (laughs) on a number of things. And that's important, right? So it's possible to disagree graciously and to talk honestly with one another. And you may end up parting company, but at least you'll understand each other clearly. If you end up parting company, you're not parting company over misunderstandings or talking talking past one another. What I've learned over the last few years, Scott, is that many of our disagreements are, not all of them, but many of them are misunderstandings of each of our positions. They've been mischaracterized. And we need to be careful that we don't do that and that we have honest discussions, that we don't unfairly paint our opponents on a certain subject in a way that is not them. They should recognize themselves in our criticisms, right? Sure. That's a basic moral Christian obligation. That's required of us by the Ninth Commandment. It's required of us by the Westminster Larger Catechism's exposition of the Ninth Commandment. Yes, it is. And so we need to take that seriously. And when we have crossed that line, we need to be willing to apologize to one another, to ask for forgiveness. And, you know, we're going to disagree. I've had many disagreements with my brothers uh, over the last couple of years as we've been talking about these different subjects. But at the end of the day, we need to be able to love one another and to be fair. And, you know, one of the big disagreements, of course, that we have is, you know, where the denomination is going to go if we continue to walk down a certain path in terms of these discussions on human sexuality, on the role of women, on social justice, and all these things. We have older men in the denomination saying these are the very very same things that were happening in the early 1960s in the mainline denomination that we wanted to get away from. Men that I serve with in the PCA who have recently left liberal denominations have said this is exactly the conversation that was going on 15 years ago, and they're worried. And for those that would just simply say, you know, you're just overreacting, you're thinking about this too much, this isn't what's happening, there is no slippery slope, I think at best that's naive. And um, we should always be cautious, right, when... We know what the devil's trying to do in the life of our church. He's trying to get us to embrace what the culture's embracing. And so that's why we're having this conference this summer. Yeah, tell us about that. You mentioned there's a a one-day conference in Dallas, the title of which is A Time to Stand, Conviction, Courage, and Compassion in an Age of Compromise. So this is Dallas, June 25, 2019. This is the day before the PCAGA. And John mentioned to me before we began recording that the details will be at Gospel Reformation gospelreformation.net, gospelreformation, one word, dot net, gospelreformation.net. So tell us about this conference. This conference is in partnership with Reform Theological Seminary, with Westminster Seminary, California, and Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. And we are so happy to be partnering with your seminary, Scott, as well as the others, really to stand unapologetically and unashamedly upon the truth of God's word as the winds of secularism increase 
and cultural pressures rise. That's what we want to do. This is not an us against them. This is not GRN versus somebody at all. It's, hey, we as a denomination need to make a stand. It's a time to stand in the midst of the fact that the winds of the culture are blowing hard and we need to nail down some more tent pegs into the tent and not to give in to these kinds of pressures. And anyone who would say, well, John, you're overreacting. GRN's overreacting. There are no real cultural pressures right now, I think has their head in the sand. Uh, <laughs> we, we've got we've got revoice. We've got lots of other things. I hear about things every week from people about things happening in congregations and presbyteries. And while everybody, you know, I should say some that will hear this will say, well, what are they? You know, name them all. Well, I, I can't always do that, right? But there are things to be very concerned about. So we hope that this conference will address some of these issues. Again, it's not an us versus them. It's a we as a denomination need to think through these things. I've asked Al Mohler to come. And here is a man who at Southern Seminary helped by God's grace to turn that seminary from a place of staunch liberalism to a place where gospel ministers are being churned out by the thousands. So we want Dr. Moeller to help us to think through what it looks like to stand firm and to not give in to those pressures, because he had plenty of them for sure. And of course, he's got a lot of cultural insights and is going to be able to encourage us that way. Kevin DeYoung will be speaking. I've asked him to speak on the topic of human sexuality. And in particular, some of the, the issues that are being raised around concupiscence and whether or not it is a sin to have same-sex attraction. In other words, should someone struggling with same-sex attraction repent and mortify that same-sex attraction, or should they live with it and not act out on it? That's a big question going on in the PCA, and it's a very dangerous and I would say pernicious issue. I think there's an insidious nature to this, which will turn side B Christians to side A Christians overnight as it's happened over and over and over again. And so Kevin will address that. Ligon will speak on living a holy life in the midst of a hedonistic culture. And then Dave Garner will speak on the mission of the church, which he's an expert at. And then Tim Geiger is the president of Harvest USA, a ministry to homosexuals. So we want to have a, a panel discussion and to talk about how we can faithfully reach out to and love and encourage and disciple those struggling with same-sex attraction. Well, it's been great to have you here. It's been great to have you on campus. Uh, we value what you're doing, most of all, in the pulpit, week by week, administering the Word of God and preaching the gospel, loving your people, administering the Lord's Supper and meeting with the elders and making house visitations. You've been a model for us here, and you were our Dendalk speaker last year, and I know the students benefited from your time with us here, and we're glad you're here on campus this week to talk to us about the Gospel Reformation Network. Thanks, Scott. It's great to be with you. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.